Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where you explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both systems' reliability and the lives of people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Tiago Barbosa, and you can find me on Twitter at TiagoB using the number one for the letter I. Hello, and welcome to one more episode of Pages to the Limit. I'm Tiago, and with me today, I have Manuel Paix, one of the co-authors of one of the best books I've read lately, Team Topologies, Organizing Business and Technology Teams for FastFlow. Uh, Manuel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. First of all, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. And before we begin, I would uh, like to ask you if you could introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. I co-wrote the book, Team Topologies, with Matthew Skelton. So the book has been out now almost four years, and it's been quite successful, which is great. My background is in computer science, and I had started as a developer, then I got interested in um, testing and QA. I became a team lead, and then I did several years of consulting together with Matthew. And that's where the ideas from the book grew uh, in our discussions, in our work with clients, of course. Before the book, people weren't talking about team topologies, but we were looking at certain patterns, anti-patterns, that things that work well or didn't work well, and the relationship between how the teams are structured and the systems that they were operating and, and all these things. So that's a very brief background. What was the driver for you and Matthew to come up with team topologies? And you kind of answered that. Yeah. I jokingly say it's... Uh, we wrote the book that we wanted our clients to read so that we didn't have to explain everything again and again. But yeah, it was distilling our experience as well as other companies that we saw that, you know, certain patterns, anti-patterns, and bring that together in a, in a consistent way. Yeah, that's a good segue to one of the things that personally got me more interested about this book is... You not only cover like patterns, anti-patterns, and you kind of provide best practices in a way to improve the communication between teams and all that and how to organize teams, but you also give like specific examples of companies that were going through the same challenges that many of us are going through. And you use their examples to kind of show the before and after, right? Exactly. And it's interesting because in the book, like I said, those examples, those case studies had a limited scope. We're just showing in this example, this company used the idea of platform as a product, for example, or you know the way they organize their teams to have to improve communication, all, all those things. And what we have now, if people are interested, is on our website on teamtopologies.com. We actually have industry examples after the book. So companies and people who read the book and then try to uh, adopt and implement some of the ideas. So, Cool, that's pretty interesting. So when I'm trying to explain and kind of sell the idea of team topologies as well in, in conversations with colleagues and in my previous company, I was one of the, like, the advocates for team topologies and we tried to implement this. The question that I, that I got very often is, is this a replacement for existing like methodologies or frameworks such as Agile, Kanban or Scrum, or is it something that you build on top or is where does this sit basically? Yeah, that's a fairly frequent question or doubt. I mean, Team Topologies itself <laughs> just had a similar discussion uh, a few days ago. Like some people think it's a pattern language, others think it's uh, Martin Fowler, for example, who wrote an article recently about Team Topologies. He 
thinks of it as like a meta model for then actually sort of creating your own instance or implementation of what kind of teams, interactions, etc. So you can design your operating model based on the, the ideas and principles of the book. And then when you look at kind of more specific methodologies like Scrum or Kanban, we intentionally didn't go to that level because we think one of the main tenets of the book is that the team is the unit of delivery. So we should be optimizing for the team to have the necessary resources and help and knowledge to do the best work they can. And we need to think about other things like how do we get teams to be more autonomous and independent. But in terms of the way of working, for us, that's always up to the team. Or I personally, I should say, don't believe in this like standardization of working practices across teams. Like, Who really cares if one team is doing Scrum and the other team is doing Kanban if both teams are evolving, they're improving, and they're you know delivering on what customers actually want. I mean, unless you're focused on you know everyone must have this certification and everyone must use the same way of working. But I often think there's sort of tendency to try to standardize ways of working that is too much, right? You actually, from my point of view, what you want is to yes, you want to help the teams and say, look. There's Scrum, there's Kanban, if you need training or if you need to learn from others in the organization who have done this well, it's available to you, but then, you know, make the decision as a team. That makes sense. Does that mean that you could potentially use something like team topologies on top of waterfall, right? I know that it might be an anti-pattern because team topologies is more for designed for fast flow and waterfall is more designed for let's say, predictability in long-term vision, right? So it's an interesting question because Waterfall has traditionally, when people talk about Waterfall, we're talking about we have project and we have a number of teams involved. might be, depending on the size of a project, might be a few teams, might be dozens of teams. And then there's a lot of coordination needed, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, maybe, and before the idea that we need to have a big coordination project to get synchronized the teams and have Gantt charts and all this. So I'm not, uh, I don't think that's today in, in you know 2023, that's not an appropriate way of organizing the work because that's too slow, that there's a lot of missed deadlines, miscommunication and problems that aren't identified too late. But I would say, and coming back to my previous answer, if you have a team that has, you know, they're developing some project or some some work or product, and they decide inside the team to have a sort of waterfall approach for valid reasons. If they say, and this is also kind of typical questions, like what happens if you're not just developing software or digital services, but you actually have hardware involved, right? So your whole product, you cannot just deliver the, the, the software part. You need to have the hardware, um, whatever it is, IoT or, or something else. I'm actually helping a, a customer that, that they do, you know, that they're, they're doing, uh, working on with electric vehicles and, and charging stations and all that. So you could have a team that decides where we as a team are doing this in sort of waterfallish way where we need to do more design upfront. We need to then do the, the coding and, and then the testing once we have the hardware and then uh, you know, only then we're going to put something out there. 
So they're sort of waterfallish, but it's because the team has specific constraints they need to follow. And even then, I would try to, going back to Agile, I'll try to slice that as much as possible so that you don't do a you know huge release with you know uh, hundreds or, or dozens of features. Try to break that down as much as possible. That's a very valid point, I think. And as you said, working in a waterfall approach doesn't mean that you have small deliveries and more frequent deliveries to the business, like internally, right? And then you have a larger release by the end of uh, the quarter or whatever you, you decide, but uh, when the hardware components is, is ready, but you can still have like small releases to the business to validate your idea, your concept, and to get their feedback. And sometimes you even have, I've seen examples where, especially if, if the customer has to install the new new versions of the software that they're using that the client doesn't want, that frequent releases they want once a quarter or something like that. But more and more, those start to be like exceptions, right? More and more, the services and products are delivered in, in a kind of SaaS approach. And so it's just, the nature of how we evolved and, and how digital products and services are offered today is that you expect quick evolution and you expect ideally a lot of experimentation and figuring out if okay, is this thing that we're delivering actually being used? Is it valuable for the business because it brings profit or it brings whatever reputation or usage, whatever the business model um, requires to grow? That makes sense. So one of the most common things that I've seen in my career while developing software or helping other people develop their software is that typically teams that are developing the software and the business are thinking about different things, right? And the communication is not very frequent. Uh, it's definitely not effective because they speak in different languages. This means that almost every time when you show something to the business, then, well, it's not what they were expecting. And you are already late to meet the deadlines and all that, right? So it's one of the things that I believe Team Topologies is kind of trying to solve, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the key aspects uh, that we talk about for, for example, for stream-aligned teams, teams that are focused on some part of a product or a whole product or some other stream of value to the customers is that they need to have business awareness. You know, in the book, we talk about this idea of team cognitive load and the fact that I think part of the reason why what you said happens that teams, let's say the technical teams are talking a different language from the business that they have so much to worry about just in terms of tooling and frameworks and whatever processes as well that they might need to follow internally, that it doesn't even leave them the time and capacity to think about, to understand better the business. So we've had that divide in business and technology for a long time. And it's clearly, you know, it's an issue. It's not easy to solve, but we need to bring more product awareness and understanding of the business, which is what's called germane cognitive load into the team. So reduce the kind of stuff that is very technical, but in fact, is kind of taking away the time and capacity of the team. But it, it also requires the, the business itself and companies to change the way that they think about developing products and services, where, as you know, uh, a lot of times business thinks, well, we'll just define what are the features we want, and then we give this to the development teams, and then they'll just implement it. And anyone has been in, in a development team knows it, it doesn't work very well like that. Because of what you said, we need much faster feedback loops. 
either you need very fast feedback loops with sort of the business people who can tell you, is this what we need or not? Or which is what I think makes more sense, bring that knowledge into the teams. And that might be, again, different Different teams might have different ways to get more understanding of the business side. Either it's their learning or they actually have a business person integrate the team. It's not so easy because we've seen, for example, with Scrum, this idea of the product owner, what happened is a lot of times they are sort of a proxy to the actual people who know about and who have interactions with the customers. So they're sort of middleman sometimes or middle person translating the business needs into kind of software requirements. And we know that's not ideal as well. But yes, you have a lot of people also talking about these topics like Melissa Perry, who wrote the the book Escaping the Build Trap. You have people like John Cutler, who talks a lot about this, let's say, overlap between product and teams and organizational structures. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So one of the things I wanted to mention or go back to is the core concepts of team topologies, right? So you mentioned, because we talked about like different teams and the way the teams interact and the core concepts of team topologies, basically you mentioned four fundamental ways of kind of organizing teams, right? And uh, three different interaction modes. Can you kind of walk us through what these are and how to kind of implement them? In the book, we're talking about, first of all, how do we organize for fast flow, right? It's important to understand that you can organize your company or organization in ways that are optimizing for other things. But we know that today, mostly we need to be able to move fast. That's what's expected from the customers, that companies can react quickly and you know that you can provide also similar offerings to your competition to stay in the market with all the you know, startups and all the changes in terms of how much easier it is today for new companies to enter markets that or industries that until recently were sort of, I wouldn't say exclusive, but were difficult to get started like banking and finance, even healthcare and other areas like that. So that's the key idea, like how do we get to fast flow? And when I say fast flow, I mean fast flow of value to the customers, right? It's not just how can we deliver features faster or create new software faster. It's not about that specifically, but how do we understand better the customer and are able to provide what they need, where sometimes we don't need as many features or we what we need to improve is the user experience or we need to improve the consistency of, of the products that we offer, whatever it might be. So in that sense, you need teams that know the products and the things you offer quite well. That's very difficult if you actually have a technical architecture that's based on large monoliths where you need multiple teams to make changes to the same code base, even for you know a small feature. And so our starting point in terms of types of teams would be a stream-aligned team. That means we have one team that owns a very clear, usually part of a product, because products tend to be quite big these days or too big for a single team, but it could be that the team owns the whole product. But they need to have capacity and the skills to really be the owners end-to-end of this product or part of a product or a service, right? So they are the ones who are going to be able to evolve this service quickly and make changes to software or user experience or whatever, uh, or even documentation 
needs to be improved, but you have that end-to-end ownership. So that's the starting point, which has implications in terms of how we think about architecture, how we think about decoupling business concepts and business offerings, etc. But that's what we'd like to achieve for FastFlow. But then, as I mentioned earlier, with the complexity that we have today in technology and all the tooling we need, all the skills that we need for a cross-functional team, you know, a streamlined cross-functional team to be able to do their work well, that means that's being requested from those teams. So then we introduce the other three types of teams. So in a way, they work to support the stream-aligned teams, right? In an ideal world, we would just have stream-aligned teams. Let's just split and, and decouple our offerings so that each team can own it end-to-end and that's it. But in reality, that's difficult because of the cognitive load that is being put on those teams. So the other types of teams are, I can start with the platform teams, which the key here is to have platform teams that have a different approach from the past, where they think about the platform as a product itself. Yes, it's an internal product, but it's a product that's being used by internal teams, right? So they need to have a good modern product development approach where they talk to the teams, they understand what are the difficulties of the teams, and they collaborate on what do we need to provide in the platform to reduce that cognitive load on the streamlined teams, right? And then we have enabling teams, which are usually a team of small team of experts in some domain of expertise where we might have some gaps in the teams, right? We might have teams that need help to upskill and to essentially do that in a much more effective way. Because in the past, we've traditionally expected teams to just upskill magically by themselves because people just spend your free time learning or doing your own projects and then you learn new skills, but that's not very sustainable. And so enabling teams, and this is a very interesting area for me because I think that's maybe one area that is the least well understood in team topologies, how powerful it can be to have enabling teams. And uh, we actually created a course recently called Effective Enabling Teams on our Team Topologies Academy, where we're talking about how to start and measure the value of enabling teams and then grow enabling teams in your organization. Because we have some really good examples where this has been quite powerful and I would say almost almost life-changing for the organization. But it's very different from what many organizations expect, that the experts are doing the work, right? They're the experts, so they'll just do the work for... But that creates bottlenecks, creates dependencies. And if we take a team-first approach, as in team topologies, what you need is to bring that expertise to the teams. Not that they're going to be experts in everything, but to have a sufficient level of knowledge across different skills and domains, whatever that might be, you know, user experience, or do we need to know more about the actual business? We need to know more about maybe the legal aspects of our business, especially in highly regulated industries. And so instead of having a dependency on some other team that's going to do that work, we want to bring the knowledge into the teams. Yeah, they become self-sufficient, or at least they, they will have a general idea so they can be self-sufficient in, in most cases and avoid the bottlenecks by, by doing so. Exactly. But the enabling teams, I think, to some extent are underused, in my opinion, because they are seen more as a cost, right? We have a team of experts who are helping others and they're not actually executing or developing new stuff. And so it takes sort of a a mental shift. But in that course I mentioned, we tried to explain how we can get started without a big investment. Just you can start by having maybe some of the platform teams 
they are typically experts in some domains. So if we're talking about more technical domains, they might have some teams that are experts in infrastructure automation, or you might have some teams who are experts in monitoring or uh, yeah, alerting telemetry, et cetera. And so those teams might be in a good place to do some enabling work, right? They're not enabling teams, but they can do some enabling work to help some of the streamline teams that might be struggling a little bit with some of those ideas. There's an interesting example, since I'm talking to you, Tiago, from PagerDuty, where we did a bit of work with a, a large organization, and they told us they have a kind of platform team that, in their words, oh, they built a tool which is kind of like PagerDuty, similar to PagerDuty, but it's our internal tool. And I'm like thinking to myself, because I couldn't say this out loud, but why in the hell would you do that? Right. I, I can understand in some situations like that you might start there because you think you have some specific requirements. But if you've yourself identified that it's basically sort of the same thing, why are you in a large organization that has a nice profit? Why would you not have that team actually use PagerDuty or whatever they think fits their needs and have those people doing a lot more enabling work? Right. Because then you get. In this example, and I've seen this in other companies where then they complain that, well, we provided these services and we, we have this great platform and people don't really use it. And they say they don't have time to understand how to use it, etc. And that's because you're not doing enabling work. You need to reach out and actually talk to the teams and then you will see the change. And so don't invest, you know, if you, if you have the choice, don't invest in building your own pager duty, but actually have those people that are, I'm sure, very knowledgeable about this domain, do enabling work and reach out and explain to the teams on the ground how to use this and how to understand better what kind of monitoring you should do, what kind of alerts and, and all that. Other things that the enabling team might do is staying with, with the pager duty example, because even you know before you... you reached out to me. I've, I I quite like the documentation that PagerDuty has available like in, on your website about you know a lot of topics like incident management and so on. So an internal enabling team would be in a good position to kind of sort of curate that knowledge that already exists and tell the teams, depending on where they are, you know, if they don't know anything about incident management, it's the first time they're doing that. Where do you start? Well, read this, read this documentation from PagerDuty or read this other documentation or, you know, let's do a workshop. So there's a lot of work that I think is very powerful, but because it has that connotation that it's more of a cost rather than direct. So it's a bit harder to calculate directly the return on investment to have those teams and sort of not as widely adopted as the other types of teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you, you touched a very important point there, which is the fact that people in software developers, it's very common to have that they invest their free time, which sometimes their personal time, most times, and they invest their personal time in, in learning new stuff. And so that becomes an even cost. Right, and so it makes it even more difficult to calculate that, um, as you as you were saying. I mean, a company I would say of any size, but especially medium to large company, shouldn't rely on people spending their their spare time learning to do their job or learning new skills so they can do their job better. Of course, people who want to do that because they want to progress in their career or they want to learn new skills because they have that interest, that's great. But it shouldn't be something that the organization relies on to upskill their teams. They should have 
in my opinion, more this enabling approach, whether you have actual dedicated teams or you look at which are the teams with the right expertise to help others. But one interesting example quickly is if you're changing your architecture to microservices, you're not going to do that in one big bang change. Hopefully, (laughs) that's not a good idea. So it's going to take some time, months, maybe years, if you have a large estate of, of software and products to do that sort of migration. And so the first teams that do that, even though they might be more like kind of streamlined teams, they will be in a good position to then help the other teams that are coming on and, and migrating later on. So identifying this possibilities that already exist within the organization of sharing knowledge and doing enabling work, in this case, you know, between two streamlined teams, it doesn't have to be always the enabling team to do that. It's quite powerful. And so to come back to the previous question, in tip topologies, we also have these three key interaction modes or core interaction modes that we think are useful to think about to evolve the organization to help address the gaps that teams have. So that's collaboration, facilitating, which is this idea of sharing knowledge and helping teams kind of quickly learn new skills and uh, access a service, which is typical for platform teams. Okay. Yeah. And this is interesting because one of the concepts that you have here is that these interactions between teams, they might be, or they are in most cases, just, yeah, they are temporary. They happen in a specific point in time uh, when necessary, right? And this is something that we, sometimes I feel like the teams understand that they have the need for something, but... Let's say that you don't have an enabling team, so you have no one to reach out to, and then, well, you need to learn it yourself, right? And you find the mechanisms and you invest the time to learn that. So I do see the the power and the, the value of the enabling team for sure. So, Manuel, one question that I have for you, and probably one of the last questions that I have for you, is applying team topologies. So it requires you to kind of reorganize, right? So you need to ideally... If you are not already kind of split into like smaller teams or like following like the streamlined teams or something like that. So you you need to reorganize. And this is from experience, something that takes time and it works better if we have like senior leadership sponsorship to get this well implemented properly. So is this something that you have been seeing as well while working with your customers? And if there is kind of any tip that you can give us on making this smoother? <laughs> to me, it's a bit of an anti-pattern to expect that we're going to do a transformation, a big change to a lot of teams, and we're going to have to wait for you know C-level or to decide and to give the authority or the mandate to make the changes, et cetera. In some cases, we do see that, and that's typically coupled with another sort of anti-pattern, which is to even after reading team topologies to think that we can have an, the ideal operating model or the ideal organizational structure. And that just doesn't exist. You have organization models that will be better for some things and, and others not as good for what you're trying to do. As we were talking about team interactions, that's quite important because the, the fact that they're temporary and they change over time based on depending on what you need. Because what I see sometimes is the expectation we can define this operating model and then the interactions between teams are expected to be always the same. Oh, it's everything is like X as a service or everything is, uh, it's always collaboration, but that's actually a bad thing. If these two teams 
always have to collaborate to get something done, then there is basically a blocking dependency between them. They are not autonomous. No, they should collaborate occasionally when they maybe need to clarify boundaries between the two teams or they need to find a better way to, uh, I don't know, integrate or test across two parts of system, something like that. And so my recommendation, which is really same as a lot of people will tell you in terms of, you know, if you want to adopt Agile or DevOps or any, any kind of change in, in approach and, and, and framework is to do it step by step. Don't try to define a big program of transformation from the beginning. You might get to a point where there's enough involvement, both top down and bottom up, that it actually makes sense to make this sort of a transformation program. But you, you can start just with small things. So at the team level, and that's something interesting we saw after the book was published because it got interest from people in very different roles. And we were expecting that was more for you know, people who deal with organization design, people in management, in, in those positions that would take more interest. But we saw interest across the board, even agile coaches, architects, and software engineers in general. And I think what's interesting is that you can do small things, even as a team. Let's try to adopt these interaction modes in a more intentional way. You shouldn't need any sort of permission to do that. You just reach out to other teams and say, well, we think we need to collaborate on this and we want to frame it in this way, or we want to help to learn about X and your team has the experience and knowledge. Can you help us? You can start there. And then it's at some point, of course, you get to a point where if you can have top-down and bottom-up support, that's ideal. And what we've also seen, and this is especially true in, in large organizations, we've also seen like small organizations when people, let's say, who are in the leadership positions get the ideas from team topologies and they, they understand it's easier to do a, a broader sort of change, right? So what, some of those case studies I mentioned in the beginning, which are on the website, some of those early case studies are typically from smaller companies where they were able to, for example, one that, that comes to mind is Pure Gym. They were startup, then scale up. They had this big monolith that kept growing and they were slowing down very quickly their ability to deliver value. And so they, they took the team topologies and they looked at what are our value streams, what do we actually provide to the customers and then align the teams with that, et cetera. So they did a, a bigger change. But for large organizations, that's what I usually suggest. Let's take small number of teams. Ideally, the where people already are in tune with these ideas and have interest to kind of adopt. And in some cases, like I said, even just at the practitioner level, the team itself can start to do, you know, team API. They can start to adopt team interactions. They can look at their cognitive load and say, well, these are the things maybe we shouldn't be dealing with so that we can free up more of our capacity to look understand better the business. But obviously, at some point, they might face some barriers to do more of, take more of this approach. And that's where having top-down support is going to be helpful as well. Definitely. I, th I think the, the main point here is to, so if you're trying to look for something that works for everyone and it's like a fixed mechanism that should work the same for everyone, that would be like almost impossible. So you think, I think you need to start small and learn from it and adapt as you go, right? Yeah, I would say that. And sometimes you have even pockets of adoption. Not, I mean, we're talking about team topology, but it could be even be something else, some some other DevOps when it was starting, whatever. Because we saw, well, different people from the same large company are in touch with us, and we actually <laughs> got them to, oh, did you know that this other teams, because large companies 
that work across multiple countries and so on. People don't even know there's someone else from my company doing something similar or with similar ideas. So it's it's funny that sometimes we make that connection. That's fine that it starts in pockets and then it grows and you start to see like more and more teams adopting some some of these ideas. I just wanted to ask you, so if people are interested in team topologies, what's the best place for them to get started? I would say our main website, teamtopologies.com. That's where you have both uh, resources to get started, the infographics that are helpful to kind of just give you the broader picture. Obviously, the books, there's the, the main book from 2019, and there's the remote team interactions workbook that we launched last year. And then we have an online academy with video-based training, which is academy.teamtopologies.com. And that's how we try to scale, let's say, <laughs> both going deeper into some of the aspects of the book and bringing in examples and, and case studies into this video-based training and also our, our latest thinking, right? Since we published the book, there are new things we've discovered and, and examples. So yeah, I would say those two are the best entry points. Cool. Thank you, Manuel, for uh, your helpful insights uh, you've shared with us today. It was great to have you on the show, and I wish you all the best spreading the word of Team Topologies. And for anyone interested in getting to know more about Team Topologies, uh, Manuel already mentioned it, uh, Team Topologies website at teamtopologies.com or Team Topologies Academy at academy.teamtopologies.com. Thank you so much for listening in, and see you next time. That does it for another installment of Pager to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pagertothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pagertothelimit using the number 2. That's at pagertothelimit. Let us know what you think of the show and thank you so much for joining us and remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.